Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon and welcome to this afternoon seminar sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. The seminar's title is Lessons for Strengthening America at Home and in the World. My name is Michael Maybach. I'm a member of the Board of Trustees of the Institute and also one of their graduates. And we welcome you today to this lecture. For those of you who are new to IWP, it's a graduate school of national security and international affairs at the corner of 16th and Church Street in Washington, DC in three old historic buildings. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of advanced study and new doctoral program that we just launched a few years ago. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay for an entire semester's worth of tuition. That's how I started my studies at IWP. I took one class just to test, test drive. One can also audit courses at less cost if you're interested in learning more, please go to the website iwp.edu. This afternoon, we're hearing from Mr. Joseph Johnston. Joe is a longtime friend. I'm honored to know him. He's a graduate of Princeton University and received a master's degree in history and a law degree from Harvard University. He practiced law in New York City and Washington, DC, was a visiting lecturer at the University of Virginia Law School and a member of the American Law Institute. He's also a former president of the Philadelphia Society, of which we are both members. He is the author of The Limits of Government, published by Regnery Gateway Publishers. He lives in my town of Alexandria, Virginia. His book is entitled The Decline of Nations. It takes an in-depth look at the conditions of the contemporary United States and shows why Americans should be deeply concerned. Mr. Johnson provides many historical examples of empires declining, especially focused on Rome and the British empires, detailing their trajectory from dominance to failure, and in the case of Britain, subsequent reemergence as a modern day nation. Mr. Johnson delivers riveting lectures and lessons in the book on the US governments as viewed in the, as a concern about excessive centralization and deterioration of the respect of rule of law, which we're seeing that a lot today in some American cities. With that, Mr. Johnston, I would welcome you to this IWP lecture. Thank you for doing this. Well, please, thank you very much, Michael. I appreciate the introduction. Uh, the title of the book is The Decline of Nations. The subtitle is Lessons for Strengthening America at Home and in the World. And uh, Michael and I were talking a little while ago about the, the way I introduced the book with a, a sort of a model of decline that was written by uh, the Arab philosopher Ibn Khaldun in the 14th century. And this is a model that actually other philosophers have used. You can find it in Plato and others. Uh, Ibn Khaldun's model is basically this. As societies become wealthy, they often become soft and spoiled and uh, luxury leads to decay and irresponsibility and self-indulgence and gradually they lose their self-discipline and they fall into decline. That's a theme that sort of runs throughout the book. What I'm gonna do in this short talk is uh, to concentrate on a couple of examples, Rome and Britain and uh, then talk somewhat about some of the aspects of America today that could be regarded as indicators of decline. Now, let's start with Rome. The Roman Empire, the legendary date for the founding of Rome was 753 BC. Rome was originally governed by kings, but about 500 BC, the monarchy, was abolished and a republic was established. 
The Roman Republic expanded rapidly after its founding and soon dominated Italy and then the entire Mediterranean and beyond. The early Roman state has been called a republic in arms. Every male citizen was required to perform military service and all land-owning citizens served in the army and also voted in army units, which were called centuries. And the, and the Roman assembly was called the Centurion Assembly. In other words, military discipline and order were an integral part of the political system, which was quite important in Rome. The governmental structure consisted of two consuls who were elected by the Roman assembly and advised by a very influential Senate composed of members of the top families of Rome. There were also popular representatives called tribunes who represented the ordinary people, the plebeians. The result was a system of checks and balances that worked quite well. In fact, this system actually was quite influential, influential throughout history and was definitely in the minds of the founders of the United States when they set up this republic uh, in the 1780s. They all understood the, the Roman Republic and they used it as a model in part. Uh, the resulting system of checks and balances in Rome worked for a while, but finally broke down in the first century BC under the pressure of a vast imperial expansion, I would say overexpansion, accompanied by an increasingly out of control military and large number of peoples, large numbers of people flooding into Rome and other urban centers, creating serious urban unrest. The assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 BC was followed by a series of civil wars and then the establishment of an empire. So the Republican arms had turned into an empire in arms, a different and altogether more dangerous animal. The checks and balances of the Republican government were totally destroyed in the imperial government under an ever series changing series of emperors many of them incompetent or corrupt, some of them quite good, but many of them not so good, eventually deteriorated into a military tyranny supported by an enormous and cumbersome bureaucracy. As the economy weakened in the third and fourth centuries AD, Rome was no longer able to defend its vastly overextended frontiers. It had to defend territory all the way from Britain in the Northwest through Gaul and the Baltics and into Asia Minor and, and, and South Africa, a huge territory which they simply could not afford or were able, not able to defend. And the Roman Empire collapsed in the fifth century under AD under the onslaught of barbarian invaders from Northern Europe and in Central Asia. That was the end of the Roman Empire. Then I talk about Britain in the book. The foundations of the British Empire were laid in the 16th and 17th centuries when Britain's sailing fleet came to dominate the North Atlantic. Britain's naval power enabled it to become a great worldwide commercial power, undergirded by a superior financial system and the world's most stable and effective legal system based on the common law. These advantages in turn together with Britain's scientific creativity, led to the industrial revolution of the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, which made Britain the world's leading industrial power. Toward the end of the 19th century, in the early 20th century, however, the political leadership of Britain turned away from the free market capitalism that had produced the most successful economy in the world and moved in the direction of Fabian socialism and the regulatory welfare state. After World War II, the Labor Party took over in Britain, nationalizing a number of major, major industries and subjecting the economy to heavy regulation, redistributing wealth and raising taxes. This led to a, a substantial decline in the 1970s. Uh, Britain no longer could afford its empire after World War II and it abandoned India and then most of its other colonies. Perhaps the major lesson to be learned from both Rome and Britain is that overexpansion 
is risky. The lesson is that a, late, a, a nation should not undertake global commitments unless it has both the resources and the will to maintain them. Britain, fortunately, experienced an economic and political revival under Prime Minister, Minister Margaret Thatcher and her associates, who restored a policy favoring individual liberty and economy and opportunity, free markets, reasonable taxes, sound monetary policy, and the rule of law. And Britain today, I hope, at least, will uh, resume its historic path of free trade, liberty, and prosperity. Well, now let's turn to the United States. Well, I start with the economy. One of the most obvious features of a successful nation is economic strength. A prosperous and vital nation needs economic resources. Modern nations to support national defense and a prosperous population must produce goods and services of increasing complexity and sophistication and must produce very expensive weapon systems. That needs a strong economy. The United States uh, carried on the Industrial Revolution to new heights in the 19th century with new technologies and a host of inventions and technological and engineering innovations. Uh, as part of the, in the part of the last part of the 20th century, America led what amounts to a new industrial revolution, powered by the computer, digital technology, advanced communications, and now artificial intelligence. Of course, other nations, especially China, have now themselves learned and appropriated these advances. In the case of China, through theft of technology and other means, I'm sorry for the telephone, I apologize for that, somebody will pick it up. Uh, there are some serious long-term problems that hang over the American economy today. These include an aging population that must be supported by fewer active telephone, I said, I've got the telephone on my mind, fewer active workers, the rising costs of ever-expanding welfare state entitlements, and an enormous burden of public and private indebtedness. $27 trillion almost in public debt the last time I checked, plus a huge amount of off-balance sheet debt that is seldom mentioned and large federal government deficits extending far into the future. These numbers are truly staggering. America's political class stubbornly refuses to acknowledge that this extraordinary fiscal irresponsibility even exists. This is likely to produce a massive social and political crisis at some point. Uh, we don't know when, but sooner or later, we will pay the price for this fiscal irresponsibility. Well, then in the book, I turn to foreign policy and national defense. The United States is not an empire in the sense that Rome and Britain were empires. We do not have vast colonies around the world or rule over large populations of foreign peoples. But the US does have important interests around the world. We provide substantial support for NATO through military bases in Europe, and we have a military presence in the Middle East. Unfortunately, that's uh, declining somewhat. Uh, and in Asia, especially in Japan and South Korea. And we have very important naval forces that protect trade and commerce throughout the world's ocean lanes. As a great power, we cannot avoid extraterritorial responsibilities, but we can try to manage them prudently. In the book, I try to make a careful distinction between vital national interests and those that are not in America's vital national interests. In the case of both Rome and Britain, as well as Spain and other overextended powers, their foreign military commitments and the accompanying financial burdens turned out to be heavier than the resources available to support them. Now, there have been continuing threats. We had, of course, the Cold War, where we had World War II, uh, in which we defeated the Nazi tyranny and we heard we had the Soviet uh, war with the Soviet Union, which we were successful in combating along with our allies. And more recently, we've had uh, Islamist, ter Islamist terrorism 
exhibited in the attacks of 9-11, and we've had certain other interventions, some of which, such as the Balkan intervention in the 90s, and the 2003 Iraq war, and the attack on Libya a few years after that, which were much harder to justify. We cannot afford to be the world's policemen or to waste America's power and resources trying to force democracy on countries that don't want it or are culturally incapable of managing it. The US should therefore limit the extents of its military commitments abroad and avoid intervening militarily except where US interests are clearly threatened. Where we do have troops stationed abroad, we should seek to turn over the principal duties of regional security to those who live in the neighborhood. And I'm glad to say that under this administration, we are trying to do that in the Middle East, at least to some extent, and that seems to be working. Nevertheless, we will always need a strong military. As somebody said, I think it may have been Churchill, but I may be wrong about that, who said, war does not determine who is right, only who is left. And that is uh, what we call realism. And that's basically my philosophy. As my classmate Don Rumsfeld often used to say, weakness is provocative. The best way to win wars is to deter them, and deterrence requires military strength. As the old Roman motto put it, si vis pacem parabellum, if you want peace, prepare for war. The U.S. military at the present time is capable and reasonably well prepared. Uh, it's been somewhat strengthened under the present administration after a period of neglect. But there are serious challenges, particularly from China which is rapidly militarizing and investing heavily in advanced weapons technology and cyber, hypersonic missiles and space technology. I'm a little bit concerned that the United States may be falling behind in certain critical areas, such as anti-missile technology and space weaponry. These are areas in which we simply cannot afford to be unprepared. Well, then I have a chapter on education. Now, this is important. The United States spends over 6% of its gross national product every year, gross domestic product, I guess it is. There's a slight difference every year on education, and that's well over a trillion dollars. This amounts to far more per student than most other countries spend, but the US student rankings on the international tests are way down in the middle of the international rankings. It's been obvious for many years that something is wrong with education in America. In 1983, the National Commission on Excellence in Education issued a report called A Nation at Risk, which concluded that 23 million American adults and 13% of 17-year-olds were functionally illiterate as measured by the simplest tests of everyday reading, writing, and comprehension. The College Board's Scholastic Aptitude Tests, SAT tests, showed a virtually unbroken decline from the 1960s to the 1980s. The report noted that the academic standards in high school curricula have been seriously weakened. The Nation at Risk report produced a flurry of newspaper articles, but nothing really happened. SAT scores continued to fall and literacy continued to drop. An updated study in 2017 showed no significant improvement. Recent scores on international tests placed American students well below those in other countries. Uh, in the book, I talk, have a long discussion of the actual reasons for the decline in, of education in the 20th century beginning with the progressive movement under the leadership of John Dewey and his followers. Uh, traditional education had been based on policies that favored memorization, competition for grades, and traditional policies of promotion or failure and failure. The educational progressives questioned all of these methods and uh, favored active learning by which they meant working on projects and games and that sort of thing 
over what they call passive learning, reading books, memorizing facts, and taking tests, which they de-emphasized. The stated aim was to favor social adjustment over excellence and collectivism over competition. The progressive theory of education de-emphasized the study of history, classics, economics, and government in favor of what they called social sciences or social studies featuring simplified history, easy to read lessons about everyday life and practical social activities and games. Moral and religious instruction were dropped altogether. By the middle of the 20th century, these radical ideas had infected the entire public educational system all over America. Uh, there's a lengthy discussion of all of this, which I'll, I'll skip, but the bottom line is there's gotta be a change in, in the educational system in America. The public educational system, which is totally dominated by the teachers unions is a failure. The remedy in my opinion is to privatize the school system to the extent possible, being that parents should be given vouchers or tax credits to enable them to send their children to the schools of their choice. After all, free choice is what we have or need to have in a free society. Now the story of higher education is somewhat better. We do have good colleges and universities, although the curriculums in those colleges and universities have become so fractured and watered down by gut courses that it's possible to coast through four years of college and learn very little of importance or value. One statistic, only 18% of colleges and universities require a foundational course in US history or government. I find that to be a shocking statistic. Now today, American universities are being inundated with an intolerant left-wing culture of political correctness, evidenced by the reluctance of faculty and students to allow those holding conservative or other unpopular opinions to speak on campus. Protests have often turned violent. Faculties and administrators are obsessed with what they call diversity, by which they don't mean diversity of ideas, unfortunately, but diversity is usually defined in terms of race, ethnicity, and gender. As Thomas Jefferson said, a nation cannot be both ignorant and free. America's parents, teachers, and political leaders are unwilling to insist upon the maintenance of high standards. Indeed, the very concept of excellence, high standards, and achievement is now being denounced as unfair or even racist. Well, I have a fairly lengthy chapter on the decline of culture, uh, which follows the educational chapter, which uh, again is probably too long and I'll, and I'll skip the details here, but in the 20th century in America, as well as on the European continent, we saw the growth of what is called modernism and the modernist movement, which took place in painting, sculpture, music, literature, and architecture, and across the board, uh, was what a Alexander Solzhenitsyn called the relentless cult of novelty that overthrows one discipline and restraint after another while lowering the standards of craftsmanship to the level of crudity. This degeneration was visible in the visual arts particularly, which saw a steady drift during the 20th century toward abstraction, fragmentation, disorder, and an obsession with self. By the end of the century, 20th century, art galleries were filled with twisted metal, empty boxes, bags of cat food, and lots of raw obscenity, all passing as art. Well, there was good art at the beginning of the 20th century, but uh, we, you had people like Picasso and Cezanne and Brock in Europe and, and, uh, and here you, you had uh, some, some good, good artists too, and you had good literature too. In the early part of the century, you had Proust, Joyce, Thomas Mann, Aldous Huxley and others. And in this country, you had Fitzgerald, Hemingway, Faulkner, Robert Penn Warren and others. And gradually the quality of that literature declined, and I think 
that's in part due at least to our educational system, which we've already talked about, in which English majors are no longer required to read Chaucer, Shakespeare, or Milton, or even the American writers that I just discussed, and uh, therefore is unlikely to produce many first-class writers. Now, the American news media, well, what can you say? Uh, the news media, both print and video, are obsessed by scandal and by identity politics, leading to their immersion in fake news and political diatribe. The result has been an almost total loss of credibility by the news media and new depths of cynicism among the American public. In short, the search for excellence in culture has been replaced by self-expression, subjectivity, crudity, politicization, and a diminished sense of discipline, craftsmanship, and basic integrity. Well, then the book moves on to the condition of American society. Statistically, American society changed enormously during the 20th century. The population increased in this country from 76 million to over 300 million. Real per capita GDP grew eightfold. The average hourly wage rose very substantially. Uh, in the beginning of the century, only a small minority of homes had even running water and electricity, while everybody had in America had that, and vir or virtually everybody, and countless other material benefits by the year 2000. But America, also, society also changed in ways that are not so promising. In the last part of the 20th century, there was a shift away from strong families and strong communities. The decline of the family is an indicator of social decline. The family is the most basic of all human associations. It's the essential device for the transmission of behavior and cultural values. The family is based upon the institution of marriage, which is fundamental to a stable society. Marriage in America is undergoing serious stress, and that's been documented for example, by Charles Murray in his excellent book called Coming Apart. The rate of divorce in the United States more than doubled between 1960 and 1990. And beginning in the 1960s, there was a dramatic, dramatic rise in illegitimate births. By the year 2014, the proportion of out of wedlock births had risen to 40% overall, and for some groups higher than that. There's a lot of evidence showing that the children of single family parents, single parent families are far more likely to be poor, unhealthy and unsuccessful. The trend for, toward fatherless families is a clear harbinger of social decline. There are other indicators of social pathology in America, including drug addiction. And in every large American city, we see areas in which crime is rampant. Recently, we have seen rioting, looting, and destruction of property in American cities by urban mobs, many of them led by dedicated and trained Marxists, such as Black Lives Matter, often with the acquiescence of local officials. The mob supported by the leftist media demands defunding the police, emptying the jails, forgiving student loans, raising tax rates to much higher levels, redistribution of wealth and other radical measures to transform society. All of this is reminiscent of the Bolshevik revolution of 1917 to 18 and the violent politics in the streets of the 1930s in Germany. If the few remaining adults in this country don't get their arms around this problem, we're gonna be in bad shape. Now the following chapter is on government. Now it's obvious from even a cursory review of the history of the 20th century that modern government, when released from the traditional restraints of law, the rule of law, can pose deadly threats to individual liberty and civilization. We saw that obviously in the 20th century through Hitler's Third Reich and, and Stalin's, Stalin's gulag society, which fortunately we were able to, able to overcome uh, during the 20th century. 
But some of the social forces that produce those monsters are still with us, including terrorism, espionage, invasion of privacy, propaganda, intimidation, and mass manipulation. Government power is still dangerous because governments have at their disposal armies, police forces, prisons, tax authorities, and virtually unlimited resources. The founders of the United States created what was intended to be a limited government and was for a while, but in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there occurred a political reform movement, the progressive movement, that over the course of the 20th century changed the federal government from a constitutional republic of limited functions, spending no more than 3% of GDP into a centralized administrative state that spends well over 20% of GDP and intervenes in every corner of the society. When you add the state and local governments to that, it's well over a third of GDP and moving up in toward 40% of GDP, which is European levels of the welfare state. The result is a full-fledged welfare entitlement state burdened with $27 trillion of federal debt and a giant and inefficient federal bureaucracy. Why has this happened? Well, partly because the political elites in the US as well as in European countries have bought into the progressive political program that favors central planning, big government and redistributive taxation. But more fundamentally, it's because of the political dynamics of mass democracy. Since the recipients of government benefits vastly outnumber those who produce the income, the result is predictable. To mention just one statistic, the top quintile of US earners contribute over two thirds of federal revenues. The bottom quintile pay no or virtually no income taxes at all. And low income people, of course, receive most of the welfare benefits and they also provide most of the votes. This is the unavoidable logic of mass democracy as it actually works today. Now, finally, uh, I have a chapter on the rule of law. Uh, the economic strength and political health of any nation depends on adherence to the rule of law, which is a set of institutionalized principles designed to defend the individual against invasions of person, person and property and to provide an effective mechanism for the adjudication of disputes. In the 20th century, along with so much else in American society, the traditional view of law changed. The new progressive political and legal elites who came to dominate the universities and the political establishment and the law schools argued that central government planning was the most efficient way to resolve social and economic problems and that sweeping change was needed. In the period of the New Deal and the Great Society from the 1930s to the 1960s and later, this viewpoint led to an avalanche of legislation and administrative regulation. It also led to a new theory of law and constitutional interpretation. During the first 200 years of the country's history, the courts assumed that the US Constitution should be interpreted in accordance with the text and plain meaning of the Constitution, and in the case of ambiguity, in accordance with the intent of those who wrote it. In the early 20th century, however, the doctrine of original meaning or original intent changed in accordance with the doctrine uh, known as legal realism, in which the Constitution became what they called a living document, meaning that the justices could change uh, to, to change the Constitution or change its meaning to suit their own views of public policy. Thus, judges became the equivalent of unelected legislators. That's where we are now, and that's why the coming election is so important, one of the reasons. There were a number of radical decisions by the Supreme Court, particularly after World War II, which uh, are discussed in the book. For example, in religious matters, the Supreme Court after World War II used the Establishment Clause to hold that state taxes cannot be used to support any religious activities or institutions, whatever, 
So the federal courts struck down things like common practices such as uh, prayers before football games, prayers in public schools, and even the furnishing of instructional materials, parochial schools. Another uh, obvious example was the Supreme Court's decision in Roe versus Wade, 1973, declaring that Texas law limiting the right to abortion violated the plaintiff's constitutional right to privacy, even though no such right is specified in the Constitution for the simple reason that no such right existed when the Constitution was written and no such right existed when the 14th Amendment was written. And there are many other examples of judicial overreach that are in, discussed in the book, such as the Supreme Court's recent decree in Obergefell versus Hodges requiring states to recognize same-sex marriage. You would think that if such traditional customs as marriage and prayer are to be changed in such radical ways and fundamental ways that the people or their elected representatives should have some say in the matter. But no, the Supreme Court simply decides that a radical social change must be made and they make it. Well, uh, that's a, a very brief summary of, of some of the examples in the book. In conclusion, what can we say? Is the United States going the way of Rome? Well, I don't think so yet. The economy is reasonably strong. America is a prosperous country, after all. But there are warning signs, which we, some of which we've discussed. There is massive fiscal irresponsibility, $27 trillion in federal debt, and uncontrollable spending as far as the eye can see, plus enormous quality, quantities of private debt, massive bureaucracy, and increasing dependency on government. There's a weak educational system, declining family structures, and a declining birth rate. There's urban crime, riots in the streets, led by Marxists and anarchists. We have what amounts to a war on law enforcement in this country, a frontal attack on the rule of law and on public safety. Drug abuse, a deterioration of manners and common courtesy, extravagant displays of conspicuous consumption, vulgarity and greed, weakening of religious faith, cultural breakdown, and the decline of standards. Political divisiveness, intolerance, and hostility. I'm sure you can recognize all of these things uh, just from reading the papers or listening to the news reports. The abandonment of the traditional American values of thrift, piety, hard work, individualism, discipline, family values, patriotism, and their replacement by the postmodern values of the progressive elites, secularism, moral relativism, hedonism, collectivism, globalism, and the omnicompetent welfare states. State. These are not the values that promote a strong and vibrant society over the long run. Can we recover from this? Well, I think we can, but we have to return to fundamental principles of civic and moral responsibility. In order to restore ordered liberty and real value, we have to restore real communities based not on government edict, but on free and responsible individuals. Communities can be restored only by the free choice of those who live in them and only if their members can make the value judgments necessary to restore the spiritual sources of moral order. If this can be done before the society is fractured beyond repair, then moral order can be restored and the American Republic will survive. Thank you, Michael, back to you. Okay, well, Joe, thank you very much for your thoughtful summary of, uh, of a book that is 360 pages, as I see it here. Um, so there's a lot of territory to cover. And by the way, we can urge people that are online to ask questions. Um, well, I tried to keep it short, Michael. There's a, a famous definition that the secret of a good speech is to have a good beginning and a good end and bring the two as close together as possible. Well, thank you. I think you've done that. 
Um, so I've got a question or two, and then we urge people to ask questions on the Q&A box here. Um, you didn't mention China, and I know you really focused on Western civilization, but I think it could be argued that China for much of its history was the middle kingdom, as it was called, and had tributary states. And then it fell uh, deeply, deeply into disunion. And during the, um, the period when the Dutch, the Japanese, the British, the French, uh, the Russians, et cetera, colonized sort of the economy uh, and gave rise to the Boxer Rebellion, et cetera. But in the, in the 19th century, things were very difficult in China. China, once it had adopted the free market, if not the free people, uh, uh, tenants of our economy, uh, simply uh, surely has, has seen a rise. So is it possible for a country to have a great fall and then come back? I mean, I know you say that the British Empire fell and the British country still remains, but, but they're a mere shadow, the United Kingdom of the empire. It was with the sun never set on the British Empire. So do you have a reflection on China in the context of what you're writing about here? Sure. Now, China is a very interesting example. Michael, you're quite right about Chinese history. Uh, Chinese history is extremely interesting, uh, going all the way back to Confucianism, and which, which rem there are certain aspects of Confucianism that remain popular. Uh, a friend of mine, Chris Hancock, has got a book coming out on uh, Confucianism and, and Christianity, which deals with some of this. In the 20th century, China experienced a communist revival, if you can call it a revival, uh, under Mao. Uh, of course, the communists defeated Chiang Kai-shek, uh, who moved into Taiwan, and the communists implemented a terrifying, terrifying tyranny under Mao Zedong. Uh, the Cultural Revolution was brutal. They killed literally tens of millions of people. Then under Deng Xiaoping uh, and others, they, uh, they, as you said, they, they, they implemented an economic revival, incorporating some of the elements of free enterprise and free markets, but they kept restraints on the people. And you can see that in Hong Kong, you can see that in, in, uh, in, in Western China uh, with the Uyghurs, they, they, it is not a free country politically. It is a, a strong country and they are rapidly militarizing and prevent a, a clear and present danger to us. So uh, I don't know what to say other than that we have to be we have to mobilize and we have to defend ourselves. There was an article in, I think, the Wall Street Journal either today or yesterday about the China's mobilization of, of missile technology, anti-ship missiles, which are deadly. And, and we, we, we risk being chased out of the East, East Pacific. Yeah. Well, let me get to some of the questions here. Um, one questioner says, it appears that our form of democracy is not, of course, we're a democratic republic. Our form of democracy is not working. I assume it's almost impossible to change it. What might be the solution? Well, I'm not sure democracy is dead. It was, the United States was created as a, as a limited government, as a republic, not a democracy. The founding fathers were concerned about democracy. They were worried about some of the democratic excesses in ancient Greece, and uh, they did not want to create a mass democracy. It has turned into something approaching a mass democracy, which I outlined in my talk, uh, in which you know, we no longer seek a good society, but rather 
to satisfy as many wants and demands as possible uh, through a sort of majoritarian democracy, and that is uh, potentially dangerous. So you have to try to recreate those limits by the checks and balances that the founding fathers set up initially, limit the government uh, to, to, to what it was designed to do through specific limited powers. Now that's not easy to do once you've let the genie out of the bottle. Right. So uh, another question I'd like to, to ask is the role of faith. You did not mention religion. And yet, I don't think you can mention Britain or the United States anyway. Of course, the Roman Republic became an empire and then the Holy Roman Empire, but without getting into that, perhaps, the, the embrace of Christianity at the time, um, is the decline of the United States, or at least seemingly, we're in a lot of trouble, I would say, um, reflected in the decline of faith, because we do see those numbers declining. Or is, uh, is that not a metric that you would look at in the decline of the nation? Oh, it's definitely important. And I talk about it in the book. I, I mentioned it briefly in, in my talk, some of the recent case law, which, uh, which limits religion. There is a, I don't want to quite call it de-Christianization. That's what they called it during the French Revolution. But something similar, there is a secularization going on and certainly uh, a tendency in that direction. And, and it, it does weaken the support for morality. I mean, what are, what are moral rules based on? If you don't have the Ten Commandments, if, if you don't have a transcendent authority, what do you base your principles on? So I, I totally agree with you. That's a serious concern. Okay. We have another question here. Do you believe that illegal immigration is a major factor in U.S. decline? Illegal immigration, not legal. Yes, yes. I left that out of out of the talk just to, to save time. I, I have a su significant uh, section of the book devoted to immigration, and what happened was. In the early 20th century, of course, we had significant amount of immigration, legal immigration, which was productive. I mean, we had the Industrial Revolution going on and we needed a lot of workers and they assimilated. Then we, we shut down immigration for a while, but in the 60s, you had the Immigration Act of whatever it was, I think it was 65, which vastly opened the door to, to immigration, both legal and illegal. And there was a vast splurge of immigration uh, toward the end of the century. And many of those immigrants, many of them illegal, were not assimilable, or not as assimilable as they were earlier. And that's quite dangerous because they do take jobs away from Americans who, who, who would, would happily do those jobs there was a, there's a myth out there argued by the proponents of immigration that, well, you ought to let the, the illegal immigrants in or immigrants in because Americans won't do those jobs, but that's not true. Of course they will do those jobs. You might have to pay them a little more, but it's to, to allow illegal immigration on a massive scale diminishes the value of American citizenship and it should be strictly limited. So here's a uh, question from Kurt. Patrick Janine, who's a friend of ours, uh, in his book, Why Liberalism Failed, which came out, I think, three years ago, approximately, posits that liberalism has failed. This is liberalism and sort of the idea of liberal Western society has failed because it succeeded in its intent to drive to the premier of of the individual, which is either guaranteed by the state, the progressive view, or the free market, the traditional conservative. In other words, the individual is the most important thing. What alternative other than God, spiritual re revival, if you will, 
is there to help ensure that our Republic and the American experiment will continue in the face of this sort of individualized progressive sense of entitlement and victimhood or this sort of selfishness that a questioner or Patrick Deneen suggests that the free market is all about things and not about sort of human flourishing? Well, that's a great question, Michael. And uh, it's, it's uh, certainly not, not, not easy to answer. Uh, you need to return to the type of individualism that the founders had in mind, which was individual liberty and individual responsibility, meaning not just rights, but also duties. Yeah. And uh, that means limited government. And that means a return to federalism. And that means decentralization, in my view. You need to cut down on the administrative welfare state, which is grown out of all proportions, and give powers back to the states. Unfortunately, uh, and that's been the history of the 20th century, the 17th Amendment, for example, was, in my opinion, a big mistake. The senators were originally elected by state legislators, and that gave the states a stake in the Senate, and they and gave the, the senators a loyalty to the states. And once you abolish that and had direct election of senators, and then had all of the centralization that went on during the New Deal yeah. and the Great Society, you took that power away from localities and states, invested it in bureaucrats and administrators in the federal government. And that was a big mistake. Whether you can put that genie back in the bottle is a, a huge question. So on that, I would make two comments if you don't mind. One would be uh, for to suggest our viewers today, read Madison's Federalist 45, where he says the federal, he was talking to the state, don't worry, this is not gonna be an all powerful uh, central government. The federal government would look outward toward other countries as trade policy, military, like protecting the borders, immigration, and the states, the 13 states at the time, will look inward toward the people to provide the, the welfare, education, roads, that sort of thing. And we, because of the 16th and 17th Amendment, we've nationalized so much of that. Well, yes. Even yeah. more than the 17th Amendment was the, was the income tax amendment where we sent all the money to Washington. Right. We're going to revive some of this. Maybe 25% of income tax stays in the states and is, is spent on the welfare policies and not distributed by Washington. That, those are just a couple of thoughts. Well, that's a, those are excellent thoughts, Michael, and I agree with that. Uh, the, the problem was the progressive movement. And they were the ones who wanted the 16th and 17th Amendment, and they, which they got. Yeah. And the idea was that the, the Constitution is just a piece of paper, forget it. And that what we need to do is to have experts running the government. Right. This was John, John Dewey's point yes. and others' point. We need to have these experts in these administrative agencies. And the administrative agencies have executive power, legislative power, and judicial power all together. Right. No more separation of powers. We'll have these experts running the government. Yeah. Well, how did that work out? So we have a question from our friend Tom McDivitt, who um, He's one of my neighbors here in Alexandria, a wonderful fellow. He, he thanks you for your book and your talk. And he says, the Americans founders spoke of providence. Of course, providence was mentioned in the Declaration of Independence as the source of our rights, you know, our creator. It was essential to the dynamic of their world view. Is there a way to reintroduce the role of God's providence into the 21st century, he's asking. And I think part of this question is really to bring humility to our government again, where they realize that they're servants as opposed to masters and designers of the country's every nook and cranny. Well, that's right. You need to go back to the Declaration of Independence and read the introduction to the Declaration of Independence. Uh, the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God 
entitle them with decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that so forth. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and so forth. Now, and the- Back to where we started. You know, the rest of that sentence is, and to secure these rights, governments are instituted. And yes. so we did, our founders didn't institute government to give you stuff paid for by some other citizens, but rather to, to, to protect your rights from each other's encroachment on your rights, but also from government taking so much that you become serfs rather than citizens. Absolutely correct and very well stated. Thank you. Let's see if we have, we have other questions here. We have time for one or two more. Um, and let's just see, just uh, scroll down here. Uh, racism is fast becoming a definitive identification of American society. Sort of, we hear this all the time, people of color, which means dividing us by race rather than quality of our character. Can you evaluate this movement and decline of American original qualities, um, uh, which is really identity politics, I think it was what he's asking. Yeah, well, that's, that, that's, that's right. And I, I do deal with that to some extent in the book. Unfortunately, the book was written and, and handed it into the publisher before all of this nonsense <laughs> occurred in the last three months, but, uh, that, that's absolutely right. Racism is a very, very serious charge and, and to, to overemphasize it, I think it has been overemphasized. I do not think that this country is systemically racist. Now, I was brought up in the deep South in the old days and there was racism, yeah. no question about it. Right. But this country has changed yeah. for the better. Now, I'm not, it's not a perfect country, but it's changed for the better. And, uh, it, and, it, and, it, and it keeps changing for the better. It can change for the better. So I think it's a vast mistake to overemphasize identity politics and, and racism. Uh, I mean, there, there are, sure, there's some racists around, but uh, there are fewer of them than there used to be. And I, and I think we're getting better at counteracting racism. We really are. And um, to our credit, and but it's it's always a work in progress. I'm going to end with a question from our friend Al Regnery, who's your publisher and a longtime um, a leader in the world of publishing. He asked, "How does Western Europe, Joe, compare to the U.S. in terms of the problems that you describe, and how does its future compare to ours?" Well, Western Europe is a little bit farther along on the road to, uh, call it the road to tyranny if you want to, the road to the administrative state. That their proportion of their revenues that go to government is higher, substantially higher than it is here. And uh, so I, I think we're still better off than the Europeans are. We're freer. I think we're more independent. We're more individualistic. Uh, the, the Europeans have their own problems. Uh, they're not really. You, the, the European Union exists as a as a trading block, but it it doesn't really have any power. It has no military power. It has very little diplomatic power. So. Uh, I, I think, and, and of course, they, they have a, a, a vast immigration problem in Europe, and they have a, an Islamic problem, and I, uh, I think the European countries are in some trouble, but I think my sated publisher obviously has a, 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 a question about this, and, and Al probably knows more about this than I do, so... Maybe a next IWP discussion would be with a European and an American scholar about that. Would be, that, that, would, that would be a great idea. All right. But get I need that, to close this over here. To respect, we want to thank everybody that tuned in on Facebook and online here with IWP. We have lots of programming at IWP. It's a wonderful graduate school. 
Mr. Johnston, I want to thank you very much for all the years of work you put into giving us this book. It's quite a gift. I think sometimes people have a book in their hands and they say, isn't this nice? But I, this is a huge amount of work and thought and counsel with others that you recognize in your, in your uh, prologue. Uh, people like Donald Rumsfeld and others that spoke with you about this, your publisher, uh, Republic Books, et cetera. And I recommend people to look at what Republic Books is doing. Uh, so I thank you very much for this. It's a gift to IWP and to our guests. And we would ask all of our uh, listeners to um, look at the IWP website for future events like this. So Joe, thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. I, I enjoyed the dialogue very much.